Would you pray with me? Father, just as you sent your Spirit to your disciples to speak for them and give them words as they proclaimed your Gospel, send your Spirit now to us that you'd open our minds to think through them, that you'd take my words and speak through them, that you'd open our hearts to your Son, Jesus Christ. Bless this time as we gather together to hear from your Word. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. When I was in seminary, I had the privilege to take a trip to Africa. And we were invited to take part in the clergy conferences in two dioceses, in both Kenya and Ethiopia. One of the encouragements I had from that trip that was somewhat unexpected to me was hearing stories from the clergy there in Africa and realizing that the context in which they do ministry is much closer to the context of the Gospel and the New Testament than my own. Passages that I often found difficult to relate to, to them, seemed to speak directly into their situation as they ministered to their people and sought to share the Gospel in their culture. One example of this reminds me of our text from the Gospel this morning, Matthew chapter 10, verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, for me, coming from a Christian home with supportive parents and siblings and family that were thrilled that I decided to go into seminary and felt called into ministry and supported me throughout, this passage has always been something difficult for me to relate to. It seems very distant and far off. But when I was in Africa, I got to meet a priest who had converted to Christianity from Islam. Not only had his family rejected him and disowned him, but they actually held a funeral service for him as a direct symbol that he was dead to the family and would be treated not only as a stranger but even an enemy to them for his faith. Another priest I met came from a traditional African family and had converted. And even though he had a wife and children, his family arranged a second marriage for him, for polygamy was very common in those days. And it was very difficult for him because honoring one's family is the highest value in that culture. And he wrestled with his decision, but in the end decided he could not go through with the second marriage and had to stand for his faith. As a result, his family literally hired hitmen to kill him because of the shame they brought on him. And he had to flee to the other side of the country and was in hiding with the bishop when we were visiting Hearing these stories of these Christians in Africa bring texts like today's to light to me in a way that I had never experienced before, as I realized what many of our brothers and sisters around the world have to face. And as I prepared a sermon this week to preach on Matthew 10, these men were on my heart and my prayers. And I think they should be on all of our hearts and our prayers. So let's look together. If you have your... Bible, I encourage you to open it to Matthew 10, or you can pull out your leaf and follow along with me. 
If you weren't here last week, my name is Scott Gorbel. I'm a non-parochial priest in the diocese. My family and I live on the, actually live on the east side of Cleveland, uh, but we've made our home Christ Church West Shore, so I come bringing their greetings to you, and I'm glad to be here with you. We're in the middle of a, a little three-week sermon series on the Gospel of Matthew. These are Jesus' instructions to the twelve apostles. As a brief recap, last week we looked at the meaning and significance of Jesus calling the twelve apostles to him as a symbol that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's reestablishing Israel and declaring that the kingdom of heaven is near, that ultimately Jesus is drawing a new people to himself, a people for whom the kingdom of heaven will be real and manifest here on earth through them. Last week I made a side comment about verses 9 through 15. And I indicated that as Jesus was giving these instructions to the twelve, sometimes instructions that seem confusing, that part of what's going on is that these aren't universal instructions that Jesus gives to all of his disciples. Rather, a specific set of rules, if you will, for these twelve as they're going out in their ministry and the symbolic significance of what it was that they were doing as Jesus is calling Israel to repent and follow him as a new Messiah. But I did not want to indicate through that side comment that that doesn't mean that we can't learn anything from this text. Quite the contrary. Though we aren't the original hearers of this word and these instructions, they weren't written directly to us and can't be applied one for one, nevertheless, we do believe that the Scripture is God's living word and speaks to us and is there for our instruction and our benefit and encouragement and challenge. And so we can make a jump from their context to ours and hear God's word to us through this text. For instance, last week, in verses 9 through 15, if you have your Bible open, you can see Jesus instructs them this curious passage about telling them not to take anything with them. Take no gold or purse or staff or sandals or two tunics. They're to go empty-handed. And they're not to be paid for their service. They're not to arrange uh, places to stay. They're not to set things up. Rather, they're to go to whatever household receives them. And they're to openly receive what's given to them for their ministry. This set of instructions doesn't apply to us. Jesus isn't indicating that we shouldn't have multiple sets of clothing, or we shouldn't have money, or that we shouldn't fundraise for our ministries. All of this is fine and good. And yet we can learn that Jesus is teaching his disciples to rely on God's provision rather than their own resources. Rather than relying on their own wealth and skills and ability to plan, they're to go empty-handed and receive from the Lord as a way of teaching them to rely on God's providence and the leading of the Holy Spirit to direct them in ministry. And that message applies just as much to you and me as it does them. As we seek in our ordinary everyday life to be disciples of Jesus and to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom here in Lakewood and in Cleveland, we are to rely on God's providence. Yes, we can fundraise and plan and study and learn, but none of these things in and of themselves will bring the gospel to the world that needs it. 
God alone and the leading of the Holy Spirit alone has authority and power to change hearts and minds and open us up to the gospel. And so we must learn to rely on God's providence and will and come before him empty-handed. So we see the same dynamic at work in today's passage in verses 16 through 33. Much of this text is about persecution. As I already read verse 21, describing families turning on one another. For many of us, these passages won't relate necessarily directly to us. The context of this passage, Jesus is sending out the disciples in the middle of a time where the Pharisees and leaders of the synagogues have already turned on Jesus. They've called him demonic, hence the verse where he says if they've called the master of the house Beelzebub. They claimed that he was driving out demons by the power of demons. They're suspicious of Jesus and are already beginning to plot to kill him. So it's a dangerous thing then to be his disciple and go and share his gospel. They're putting themselves at risk. While it might not be a one-to-one, there's still much we can learn from Jesus' instructions to us as we seek to share the gospel in our own time. Yet there is a danger at the outset of relating these verses directly to us. The text is clear that they apply to the disciples and not directly to us. For instance, consider verse 17 and 18. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm suspecting that none of us have been dragged before courts and synagogues and governors for the sake of the gospel, thankfully. And it is not our job to bear witness before them and the Gentiles of Jesus' day. These are specific instructions to the twelve. Likewise, verse 21. Brother will be delivered over to brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Very puzzling unless you're considering the context of these specific disciples going out with a specific ministry in their time. And lastly, verses 24 through 25, where Jesus warns them about the master of the house being called Beelzebub, and they will be maligned for following him and likewise labeled. If we read these verses as a direct message to us, we're in danger of developing what I would call a persecution mindset. I fear far too often that in the challenges we do face in our own culture and time, sometimes Christians are quick to play the victim card and see every slight or discomfort or difficulty as persecution. And sometimes even to seek persecution and to, in order to glorify ourselves Look how great it is that I stood for the gospel even though someone was making fun of me. There's a danger in that sort of persecution mindset. Simply because Jesus instructed the twelve apostles who he was sending out to these towns in the midst of them planning against Jesus doesn't mean that all disciples face persecution. Many of Jesus' own disciples in his day of the first generation continued to live comfortable lives with their families who did not turn on them, 
who were not brought before courts or governors or kings. And throughout time, we know that actually the majority of Christians have not faced the types of persecution that Jesus has described here. Does that mean that we are somehow lesser Christians? Or less faithful? By no means. Rather, these instructions are to a specific group of men, whom, almost all of whom would be martyred, and all of whom would face great difficulties because of standing for Jesus and who Jesus called them to be as the twelve apostles. We do not need to go looking for persecution or to overhype the persecution we do face. And so as we read these passages in the comfort of Lakewood and Cleveland and our lives, I would encourage us to read this as a word to remind us to think of our brothers and sisters around the world who do face persecution. I mentioned those in Africa who have faced challenges from their family. I've also had the privilege of spending some time in Turkey, and I got to meet with some underground Christians, pastors of churches that weren't authorized by the government. And recently, a group of them had been kidnapped by radical extremist Muslims and actually crucified, or not crucified, but beheaded, sorry, grisly, and posted online as a result to send a message to this Christian group. And these are just some examples. We know of many Christians in regimes where they're imprisoned and accused falsely, sent to labor camps in places like North Korea, sometimes even China or Russia, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan. If it isn't part of your regular discipleship, part of your regular pattern of prayer to pray for the persecuted church, the Lord is speaking to us through the text today to remind us that our brothers and sisters around the world are facing persecutions and they need our prayers and encouragement and support. So I commend to you a couple of ministries that I'm aware of that might help if this is not something you've ever thought about. One is the Voice of the Martyrs, which is a ministry that seeks to support martyrs and persecuted Christians around the world. And if you go to their website, Voice of the Martyrs, they have a nice map that displays the whole globe and different countries that face persecution. And you can click on each country and it actually gives you a list of prayer requests to learn more about what Christians face in those countries and how we can be praying and supporting them. Another ministry I'd recommend within our Anglican context is the Anglican Persecuted Church Network. This is part of the New Wineskins ministry. Some of you might have heard of. It's a missionary network that the Anglican Church of North America supports. And if you visit the Anglican Persecuted Church Network, you can again find a list of Anglicans that are persecuted around the world and how we can pray for and support and encourage them. I commend these ministries to you. Yet this text, again, can also speak into our lives and where we are. We may not face courts and synagogues be beaten or killed or disowned by our families for the sake of the gospel, but many of us will face rejection, perhaps ridicule, perhaps insults, perhaps social outcast as a result of sharing the gospel in the midst of a society that is, that is becoming increasingly less Christian and even hostile to Christianity. Sections of this text seem to 
clearly go beyond just Jesus' specific instructions to the Twelve and be universal words to the whole church. Consider how our passage ends today in verses 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is a direct word to us and an encouragement to stay faithful to the end. Despite the many challenges we face, to acknowledge Jesus and remain faithful to him in the midst of our society. And an encouragement that if we acknowledge Jesus, he will remember us before his Father. I'd like to go through and look at three other verses within this text with you today and see what the Lord might be speaking to us through this word. The passage begins... In verse 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. As I said, many of us might face an uphill battle trying to share the gospel with our neighbors. And increasingly, our society, it's becoming unpopular to be Christian. And it's moved from those in our society rejecting Christianity to even calling into question whether or not we are good or moral or good for society. America is becoming more difficult for those who want to stay faithful to Jesus. So how are we in the midst of such a society to proclaim the gospel? Jesus tells us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now the phrase serpent reminds us of Genesis 2 the serpent that deceived Adam and Eve. The serpent was described in, the, in Genesis to be the most crafty of all the creatures on earth. Why does Jesus tell us then to imitate the serpent, to be crafty? Surely he does not want us to tempt other people or lead them into sin. Rather, this phrase crafty that the serpent is described with means a type of wisdom to know what to say in order to convince people to change people's hearts and minds. But rather than changing their hearts and minds away from God, Jesus encourages us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now doves in Jesus' day were sold at the temple for sacrifice because a pure white dove was considered innocent and a sign of purity. And so we are, like the serpent, we are to know what to say and how to change people's hearts and minds and have wisdom to proclaim the gospel well, but we are to do so as a sacrifice to them, not manipulating them for our own gain, not deceiving them, rather using our wisdom as a way to bring salvation to them, as a way to cover their sins and lead them to repentance and Jesus. As I think about this phrase, being wise as serpents and innocent of doves, I think of the witness of the late Timothy Keller, who recently passed away. I'm sure many of you know Tim Keller. If you haven't read any of his works, he has some great works on evangelism and what it means to share the gospel in our context today, such as The Reason for God. And I commend those books to you. But more than his writing, 
after his recent death, I've been hearing many interviews and reading articles about what the, his legacy was and what his life was like. Beyond his words, those that knew Timothy Keller well commend his character. Tim was well respected, not only in the church and amongst Christians, but in, amongst many non-believers as well in New York. People who are hostile to the faith respected Dr. Keller because of his message and his intellect and his ability to articulate the faith in an intelligent way they could relate to. But more than that, it was that he wasn't trying to manipulate or deceive them. He wasn't beating them over the head with his intellect. He was representing the faith reasonably and intelligently. And yet, what those who knew him well would say is that he genuinely cared for everyone who sought counsel for them. That he would show interest in their lives, listen to them, seek to be, meet them where they were at. He was never demeaning or belittling or unkind. Rather, showed genuine care for who they were. And his legacy can teach us what it means to be faithful to Jesus in our day. To be wise as serpents and innocent of do- as doves. Verse 19 through 20. This passage is how the twelve apostles are to react when they are dragged before courts and kings and synagogues. Jesus encourages them, saying, When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you will say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. This, too, is a message to us, though we may not be dragged before courts and synagogues. Jesus is teaching us to rely on his Holy Spirit. Just as in verses 9 through 15, we are not to rely on our own resources and wisdom and planning and abilities, but rather the authority of Jesus given to us through his Spirit. As we seek to be faithful witnesses of Christ in our own day, in our own context, in your own lives, Jesus encourages, do not be afraid. Do not be anxious. I don't know about you, but I often do feel anxious and afraid about evangelism. Am I wrong? Am I unfaithful to be afraid? No, otherwise Jesus wouldn't be given the instructions, do not be afraid about what to say. He knows that we can be anxious. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I put my foot in my mouth and make the gospel look stupid or foolish? What if I offend someone? These are all common fears to have. Yet Jesus encourages, don't be anxious about what to say, for what you are to say has been given, will be given to you in that hour. And it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Jesus wants us to rely on the provision of God the Father and the leading of the Holy Spirit to give us words and instructions on how to act and what to do and what to say. And so we must further our relationship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit and learn to listen and to hear from his voice as we are faithful to Jesus This theme of not being afraid, not being anxious, goes over the whole passage. In verse 26, he says, Have no fear of them. 
For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And this comes to a climax in verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus knows that it is difficult to live in our world. He faced those challenges himself. Rejection, ridicule, hardships. That trying to stand firm in the faith, to be faithful to God, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, we will face challenges. Jesus encourages us, do not be afraid. Last week I shared that we are living in the midst of a mental health crisis, what some call a second pandemic, and that the individualism and isolation in our society exasperates those conditions, that many in our world are facing loneliness, depression, anxiety, and our world desperately needs to hear the message of the kingdom of heaven, that Jesus has come to establish a new people for himself, a people who will be God's kingdom on earth, where every affliction is healed. Our world desperately needs to hear that message, but so do you and I. I imagine many of you out there can relate to the mental health crisis. Perhaps you have a diagnosis of depression or general anxiety or bipolar or something else. Or perhaps you simply struggle with feelings of loneliness, sadness, fear and anxiety, worthlessness. I know I have my struggles, and some days have been very hard in the last few years. I do not want to suggest that simply saying, have faith, will heal mental illness. Oftentimes, the struggles of mental illness take time, and take community, and take work. And if you need support and counseling, I encourage you to seek it. Yet God's word to us is clear that faith can be a foundation of peace a means of God's grace to us. That as we face anxieties, sadness, loneliness, difficulty, that Jesus is speaking to us, have no fear. Do not be anxious. That when the voice of our enemy speaks to us and challenges us and instills fear and anxiety in us, the Lord says, even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. The Lord loves us and cares for us. And His Word that calls us to be faithful and to proclaim the message of the kingdom is also a word of encouragement to us to trust in Him and rely on His Spirit. And as we do so, we will find a Father who provides for us and cares for us. Would you pray with me?
Lord God, we come before You empty-handed, not relying on our resources, our own abilities and skills, cannot lead the world to the salvation that it longs for. We are wholly dependent on You. And we ask that You send Your Spirit to calm our fears and anxieties, to give us the words to speak, that as we face challenges and as we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are persecuted for Your name, that You will be with us in the midst of us. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.